You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. So as I mentioned, we're considering for the six-week series here, we've got three weeks left, including today, uh, this question, or really the statement, you can change. And we're looking at six different questions surrounding that central idea. And the central idea is that God wants to change you. His agenda is to change you into the image of Jesus Christ, and he's going to accomplish that purpose. And so today, what we're doing is thinking about the idea of why we get so frustrated, why we get so irritated at our lack of change. I wonder if any of you feel like that or have ever felt like that before. You know you have things in your life that need to change, things that you need to stop doing, or things that you need to begin doing that you aren't presently doing, but you just can't seem to get over the hump. You might not even be anywhere near the hump. You're not even close. And you're frustrated. You're irritated. You're bothered. You might even be angry at your own seeming lack of change, lack of conformity into what God calls his people to. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while... This is something that I would imagine you've experienced on more than just rare occasions in your life as a follower of Jesus. It's something that I think is common to the Christian life. And so what we're going to do is think about the question today, what stops you from changing? And we've looked at, as I mentioned, this big idea of our series that God wants to change us. That is a part of his agenda. And we saw last week that that change occurs in our lives as we consider more and more who we already are, what our identity is in Jesus as a result of the gospel, as a result of our faith connection to Christ. And that change happens as we live more and more in the reality of our new identity as adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. And so this week... As I said, we're going to continue to explore some further questions related to the how, to the how question. And the question today is, what stops us from changing? And there's a lot of things I could say about this. The the scriptures actually give a a multiplicity of reasons for why we don't change. And yet there's one reason I believe, there's one roadblock that blocks our pathway to gospel-oriented change, perhaps more than any other. The major roadblock in most of our lives to change, the major thing that inhibits change is what I'm calling this morning self-love, or a more common way of putting it, pride. Now, when I use the word self-love, that phrase, just to be clear, I don't mean that it is wrong to be concerned with your own health and your own care. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, When I challenge our self-love, I'm not saying we should hate ourselves, right? Um, I mean self-love, rather, in the sense that our loves are disordered. Our loves are misarranged. We place ourselves above others and above God. We don't love God, and we don't love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And so self-love in this sermon, in this context, is another way of speaking about pride. And we can go down the pathway of change and meet this roadblock of pride on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, 
It impacts all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, or somewhere in, the, in between, if you're not sure, pride impacts you. And so our task this morning is to consider together how self-love inhibits our change projects and how, with God's help, we can move past it progressively in our lives. And so here's how I want to summarize the main idea that I think these texts communicate in the context of our series. The great roadblock on the pathway to change is self-love. That's the main idea. And so what we're going to look at is how that roadblock shows up in our lives and then how to address it. And the way to address it is with gospel-fueled humility. So what our purpose is this morning is to think about how we can remove the roadblock of self-love with gospel-fueled humility. And so let's look at this parable that was read for us in Luke chapter 18. This is a very helpful parable for our purposes. Notice in verse 9 who the audience of the parable is. Jesus is speaking, Luke tells us, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, Jesus directs this story towards those who are full of self-love. Or you can say that they are those who do not walk humbly before God as we are called to do again and again in the scriptures. Look at the story Jesus tells. Two men go to pray. One we read is a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a religious teacher and leader. And the other is a tax collector. And tax collectors in the ancient Roman world in Jesus' time were seen by and large as charlatans. <laughs> they were seen as traitors. They were seen as thieves because often, and often the case was that they were those. Um, and the difference is stark when we consider the respective prayers of these two men. And what Jesus is doing is pointing out that the distinction is that the Pharisee's prayer, verse 14, will not lead to his justification. But the prayer of the tax collector, on the other hand, does. His sins will be forgiven. And so the question as we look at this parable is, what is the problem with the prayer of the Pharisee? What's the problem with the Pharisee himself? And here's what I want you to get, because we can easily mis mistake this. The problem is not that the Pharisee is a bad guy. Do you know that? Uh, his problem is not even that he is a, quote, sinner in the way that we tend to think of those, that term. He's most definitely not a bad guy. He is a good guy. I mean, look at what he says about himself. There's no reason to believe that he's lying, given what we know of Pharisees. He's committed. Verse 12, he's pious. He's praying. First of all, that's a sign of piety. And then he's generous. Verse 12, he, this guy is a tither. He's the kind of guy pastors want in their churches. He gives a tithe, a tenth of all that he gets. He fasts twice a week. His piety and his commitment and his external generosity, at least, seem to be evident. His problem is not that he's a bad guy. His problem is not his badness. His problem that Jesus draws out for us in this story is his effort at goodness. And if you miss that point, you miss the whole point of the parable. This Pharisee's problem is that, is that he thinks his own goodness and efforts and piety will contribute to some degree to what God thinks of him. And I put it that strongly because I want you to see how deceptive and insidious self-love is. I want you to see how quickly we slide into pride. The Pharisee's problem is proud self-reliance 
upon his own moral goodness and fortitude. His problem is his self-love. His problem is that his problem is that he does not see his own need. The Pharisee, you see, he's asking God to see him in all of his self-imagined glory in this story. He stands where everybody can see, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. But contrast that with the tax collector. The Pharisee wants God to see him, but on the other hand, the tax collector asks God not to see him. Look at what he says in his prayer. Well, what Luke tells us, or Jesus, is that he stands far off, verse 13. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Really, the, the Pharisee is praying for himself about himself. But the tax collector is empty of pride in himself. The tax collector has the distinct advantage of knowing what a mess he is before God. He has the advantage of having had all of his potential credits before God or others removed from him. And, and here's the point, friends. We must have that happen to us as well if we are ever going to see consistent change. The great theologian Martin Luther from the 16th century in his introduction to his commentary on the book of Galatians talks about what he calls active versus passive righteousness. And he says that all humans tend toward active righteousness. That is a righteousness, a right standing before God and others that we have a part in earning. That's all of our tendencies to pursue active righteousness, to make ourselves look good, self-justification, as opposed to what he calls passive righteousness, which is merely receiving what's given to us by God in Jesus. And that's the point of this parable. Listen to what Luther says. When the law shows us our sin, our past life, all the bad things we've done, all the bad thoughts we've had, immediately come to our minds. Then the sinner, in his great anguish of mind, groans and says to himself, Oh, how damnably I've lived. If only I could live longer, here's the key, then I would amend my life. Give me another chance, and I'll do better. That's the common prayer of all human hearts. And so Luther concludes, Thus human reason cannot refrain from looking at active righteousness. And here's what you need to see. That is how pride, self-love works. Pride cripples our ability to receive help from God and to change because we keep going after our own active righteousness. Just as a really brief aside, it's worth noticing how common it is for self-love and for pride to be cloaked in religion. Perhaps the most common manifestation of human pride is in a spirit of outward, externalized religiosity. The proud religious type will seem good and will do good, but ultimately, it is all for themselves. It's all an effort to put God in their debt. That's the story of the Pharisee here. You see, underneath the seeming unselfishness of this Pharisee, and underneath the seeming unselfishness of all religious types, is actually a great and profound self-centeredness. So given this parable, let's apply it to our big idea, how to change. The kind of self-love seen in the Pharisee's prayer is a roadblock on the pathway to true change. Why? 
Why is pride something that stops us from changing? Because pride or self-love prohibits us from seeing our sin and our rebellion, our issues for the problems that they truly are. Pride prohibits us from seeing our need for change. And thus, there is little incentive to move down the pathway of change. Here's the bottom line. Humility, humility is a prerequisite for change. And pride is a destroyer of change. That's what James 4, verse 6 teaches, that second text that Ashley read for us, where James writes, God opposes the proud. By the way, you never want it said of you that God opposes you. That's bad. There's a lot of people you can be okay with having oppose you, but God is not one of them, right? God opposes the proud, James tells us, but he gives grace to the humble. What makes humility so important? Why is humility the engine that drives change in our lives? Listen to this quote from Tim Chester. Here's how he puts it. Humility isn't some spiritual achievement that merits God's grace. It is the realization that we can never merit blessing from God. It's giving up on ourselves and finding all we need in Jesus. If you are frustrated by your inability to change, then your first step is to give up to give up on yourself. Or as one of my theological mentors, Jack Miller, put it, grace flows downhill. Grace flows downhill. What he's saying is that we grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Perhaps you aren't changing in life because you have not yet been emptied of your own self-love because you haven't been emptied of pride, because you're more like the Pharisee than the tax collector than you would ever want to admit, and that you can ever even really see. You haven't yet reached a point of humility. Now, at this point, I know some of you are going to disagree with me, probably not externally, at least I hope none of you shout out disagreement. (laughs) If you did, I'd just keep going probably. Um, But maybe internally you're thinking, okay, I've heard this story before. I've been in church for a while. I would never pray a prayer like that Pharisee. I mean, what an arrogant prick, seriously, to get up on the middle of the street corner and just start praying. Jerk. I would never do that. That is not an issue for me. I'm much more like the tax collector. I know that some of you are thinking that, and that's what I think sometimes when I read this text. But actually, I want you to see how ironic you're being. That is ironic. You were proud about your lack of pride. That's how insidious pride is. You are a Pharisee about how much you're not like the Pharisees. Pride is so insidious and it's so quick to root itself in our spiritual lives that we can very easily miss it. There's a lot of ways that self-love manifests itself in our lives. And so what I want to do is just give you a couple of ways that self-love shows up maybe in ways that you wouldn't initially expect or anticipate. And some of this comes from Chester's book that I've referenced the last couple of weeks called You Can Change, on which some parts of our series is based. And I'm going to list three three ways that self-love tends to show up in our lives. Three ways that our lack of gospel-fueled humility is demonstrated practically in the way that we live. And and here's the first one. The first way that self-love or pride shows up in your life is when you are excusing sin. Pride always looks to excuse sin. Pride refuses to take responsibility. 
pride refuses to own our own brokenness, our own need, our own rebellion against our creator, God. And here's what I want you to see. All of us do this. So how do you do it? Well, you excuse sin in any number of ways, just like I do. One way we do it is by blaming other people for our sin. We blame other people for what they have done. They started it. That person provoked me. It's their fault that I responded in anger. We blame other people. We blame our circumstances for our sin. We make the excuse of genetics. I take after my dad. <laughs> he used to get angry, and now I get angry. It's just, it's just the way that I was made. We blame our chemistry, our brain chemistry, for our sin. It's just in the DNA. I'm just wired that way. I'm wired to be angry. I'm wired to be a gossip. Or I'm wired to have all sorts of relational breakdown in my life. We make excuses with circumstances in our story. We might think to ourselves, if you had been through what I've been through, you would be bitter and angry as well. We make excuses based on our context. We say, I was in an unfair situation. You would have done the same thing if you had been in my place. Heck, that happened to me this week, just in a moment of self of honesty. I got upset with my kids. I was short-tempered with them. I spoke harshly to them. And I immediately, I think even out loud, but for sure inside my head, said, I've had a long day. I've had a stressful week, and the reason I'm acting this way is because my week has made me do this to you. It's blaming my circumstances, excusing my sin. It's a manifestation of self-love. You know what you're doing? Ultimately, when you're blaming other people, you're blaming your genetics, you're blaming your parents, you're blaming your context, you're blaming your job, you're blaming your circumstances. Ultimately, all you're doing is blaming God. What you're doing is saying, if God hadn't given me those parents or put me in this situation or created me with this brain chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I wouldn't do this. All excuses for sin are in the end, passing our responsibility for sin off to God. And that's what we see in the very first sin ever committed in Genesis chapter three. What do Adam and Eve do after they've sinned? Eve has eaten of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God comes to her and he says, Eve, what happened? And what does Eve say? Or what does Adam say? Sorry, he comes to Adam first. She did it. <laughs> Only time in history that's ever happened, I'm sure, right? That a husband blames his wife for his own issues. She did it. And then God goes to Eve and Eve says, the serpent made me do it. They're making excuses immediately because their hearts are no longer filled with God-oriented love, but with self-oriented love. You know that you're struggling with pride and lacking in gospel-fueled humility when you're making excuses for your own rebellion, for your own sin. Now, it's not that external factors have no role in reinforcing or triggering sin in our lives, but none of these factors fully explain our sin. Our own sinful hearts are the root cause. And excusing your sin is just another way you're actually inhibiting change in your own life. You're inhibiting change because you're refusing to own up for what you're really like sometimes. You excuse sin. Another thing we do that shows our self-love is minimize sin. How do we do that? It's not that bad. We have this internal conversation with ourselves. This was only a small thing. 
other people do this all the time and they don't make a big deal of it. Why should I make a big deal of it? Or we minimize it by comparing ourselves with others. That's a, you know, time-tested way of minimizing sin. Someone perhaps calls you out on an issue you're dealing with or an offense that you have put out on a, to another person and they'll say, I wish you wouldn't have done that. You need to, exp- exp- uh, you need to take responsibility and for- ask for, for forgive and I'll forgive you. You need to ask for forgiveness, etc. And we'll say, well, if you think I'm bad, you should see how that person does. My dad, you're lucky you're not married to my dad, honey. He's a million times more angry than I am. Minimizing. You're lucky that I'm not hanging out with that crowd of people because if I hung out with that crowd of people, you'd really see what greed or gossip or selfishness is like. We do that all the time, both in our minds and in conversations with other people. And when we minimize sin, here's the point, we are not seeing our own rebellion against a holy God for what it is. And therefore, we lose our motive to change. We're acting like the Pharisee and not the tax collector. Notice what the Pharisee does. He compares himself to another. Do you see that? I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not a thief. I'm not a charlatan. I tithe for crying out loud. I'm pious. He's minimizing. He's minimizing his own self-love, his own pride, his own demerits before God. Here's what we need to hear. Whoops, don't want to lose that. Here's what we need to hear. Maybe, maybe for the first time. Do you know this? Sin deserves God's wrath. Sin is a big deal. There's no such thing as a little white sin. Sin demands God's just punishment as a holy and righteous and pure God. Sin sent Jesus to die on the cross. Every sin and any sin does that. And so when you're minimizing sin, you're minimizing the gravity of what Jesus himself went through in his bloody death on the cross as a sacrificial lamb for human rebellion. Minimizing sin means that you can't admit you need help. And until you can admit that you need help, you can't really change. There's an episode of The Simpsons, (laughs) Simpsons illustration coming uh, There's an episode of The Simpsons in which uh, Homer, the dad, and Bart, they drift out to sea in this little dinghy, you know, a small little boat. And classic Homer, he wastes all their water washing his socks. And he eats all their rations. And when a rescue plane flies overhead, Homer fires off a flare and it hits the plane and the plane crashes. And um, at one point, they find themselves in this thick fog And Homer is in just like this hysterical state of mania and panic. We're doomed, we're doomed, he cries out. And then the fog, the fog clears and a a rescue boat drifts into view. And the people on the boat cry out, are you okay? But Homer is a typical male who won't admit his need. He won't ask for directions on vacation, so to speak. And, And so he shouts back, yeah, everything's fine. And then the fog closes in again and the boat disappears and Homer returns to his panic. We can all be like that. We're in desperate straits and we can't rescue ourselves. But when God offers his grace and his help, we won't admit our need. We'd rather reject help than acknowledge sin. And so we minimize. Third, 
First, we excuse. Second, we minimize. Third, we hide. We hide sin. Pride wrecks the process of change by causing us to hide our own brokenness, our own darkness, our own failures, our own shortcomings, our own issues. I love this verse from Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Listen, we're full of self-love when we would rather maintain our reputation than actually change through confession and humility. And often we don't do that because we're afraid. And hey, I get it. I get it. It's hard to be honest. It's hard to be open about the things you're really struggling with because you're afraid you're going to get betrayed. It reminds me of a story I heard about four preachers that are all hanging out together. And um, they meet for this friendly gathering. And during the conversation, one of the preachers says, you know what, guys, our people come to us all the time and they pour out their hearts and they confess certain sins and they admit their needs. We should do the same thing. So let's, uh, let's confess. Confession is good for the soul. And so they're like, all right. After a while, they all agree. And so one preacher confesses that during the week, he goes to like five movies a week. And that's how he spends his week. He doesn't work on his sermon. He just downloads them from the internet. And he's seen all the, you know, all the Marvel movies 15 times each. And the, uh, the second preacher says, you know, I love to smoke cigarettes and, and drink a little too much on the weekends. And the third preacher says, uh, I'm addicted to gambling. I love playing cards. I've never been able to get away from that. That's an issue. And, and then they get to the fourth preacher, and the fourth preacher just won't confess. And they're prodding him, and they're prodding him, and they're saying, hey, we're all willing to open ourselves up. What's your deal? And he says, okay, okay, fine. My sin's gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> it's hard to confess. It's hard to be honest. It's hard to be open because we don't want to see or admit that we are a mess. We want to maintain our appearance. And so we hide, we pretend, we don't seek help. Listen, here's what you need to know. That's not just sort of, well, it is normal human behavior. But what it also is, is the essence of self-reliance. It's the essence of proud self-reliance. It's the essence of not seeing ourselves rightly. If you ever are going to change, you, you say you want to change, but when we get right down to it, when you get to the brass tacks, if you're still caught up in minimizing and excusing and hiding, you don't really want to. If you're ever going to change, you must engage in gospel-fueled humility and bring your brokenness and evil and sin into the light. Jesus in John chapter 3 says this, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. He hides. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Sin is like mold. It grows best in the dark. And listen, some of you are masters at hiding sin. So let me ask you, maybe ask yourself, are you holding back things about yourself that you don't want people to know? Are you unwilling to be held accountable by close friends? Are you unwilling to seek the help of counselors or pastors or spouses or friends? Are you unwilling to acknowledge your role in broken situations? Are you engaging in sinful behaviors and then working hard to cover it all up? Until you can acknowledge this, and as Jesus says, until you can get this in the light, don't expect radical change. 
I love this quote from Jerry Bridges. It's a longer quote. Um, I put it on two slides so that it didn't overwhelm you, <laughs> but I'm going to read it. This is from his book called The Discipline of Grace. Listen to what Bridges says. The gospel applied to our hearts every day frees us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. The assurance of his total forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ means we don't have to play defensive games anymore. We don't have to rationalize and excuse our sins. We can say we told a lie instead of saying we exaggerated a bit. We can admit an unforgiving spirit instead of continuing to blame our parents for our emotional distress. We can call sin exactly what it is, regardless of how ugly and shameful it may be, because we know that Jesus bore that sin in his body on the cross. With the assurance of total forgiveness through Christ, we have no reason to hide from our sins anymore. Until you can get to that place in the spirit, you can't move past the roadblock of self-love. But you can move past it when you're willing to stop hiding to stop excusing, to stop minimizing your own inner brokenness, your own darkness, and come into the light by faith and apply the forgiving mercy of Jesus to your own heart, to your own life, and experience the joy of forgiveness. The great roadblock to change, what stops us from changing, is very often pride, self-love. And the answer to this, the answer to this is to consistently and to regularly believe the gospel. Believe that quote that Bridges summarizes the gospel for in and turn from pride and faith. You know, as you move forward as a follower of Jesus, you'll, you'll see more and more that sin, sin is like an organic network of interconnected tunnels in your heart. And, you know, it's an organic network of, of compulsive attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that are deeply rooted in your alienation from God. And, and as you mature in the faith, as the light shines in, you'll see a cave in your heart that you've never really explored before, a cave of brokenness and darkness and sin. And as you shine the light in that cave, you'll see like 10 pathways to more caves. And you'll go into that cave and you'll see 10 more pathways. That's the way sin works itself in our life. It's, it's that deeply rooted. And what the gospel enables you to, to, to do is to, is to shine the light, the light of the gospel made known in the glory of the face of Jesus Christ in the dark caverns and recesses of your hearts and expose those dark things with gospel-fueled humility. What's going to help you do that? And therefore, what's going to help you change? Listen, friends, the only thing that can really fuel that kind of humility, the only thing that can enable you to fight against self-love and pride is to see and rejoice in the reality that the cross reveals that Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered death and that nothing can separate proud, self-loving sinners from the love of God. Neither the imposter nor the Pharisee, neither the, neither the person that has a lack of awareness or a lack of passion, neither your negative judgments of others nor your debased perception of yourself, neither your scandalous past or your uncertain future. Neither the tensions in your marriage, nor fear, or guilt, or shame, or self-hatred, or even death can turn us away and tear us away from God's infinite giving love made visible in Jesus. That is true. That's the good news. 
so you can come clean. You can stop pursuing active righteousness and receive and rest in his. The gospel says he gives it to you freely. You're already covered. You're already good. You're already accepted. If you want to change, believe that and then begin to explore those dark caverns and shine the light there until that process begins, until you're willing to stop minimizing, to stop excusing, to stop hiding. You're not really going to experience the change and the hope and the joy that Jesus offers you through the Spirit by faith in the good news. May it be the case that we are willing to move forward in that. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we thank you that in these parables of Jesus, you actually reveal to us how much we're like the Pharisee, how much we want to throw out our achievements, throw out our accomplishments, throw out our own morality, our own self-effort, our own strivings, so that we will receive recognition. We chase after active righteousness, and we really, really don't like simply receiving and resting in a righteousness that is completely foreign to us. It's not ours, it's Jesus's, but Jesus gives it to us for free. And so, God, because we do this all the time, we're full of self-love and at the same time self-loathing because self-love never really works out well for us. We're full of pride and at the same time, we're despondent. Lord, we're a mess. We're a mess. And, and we want to change these things about ourselves, but we're so used to not being willing to open up who we are. We're so used to not seeing ourselves accurately through the lens of the scriptures that we don't even know where to begin. So, Spirit, will you help us to begin? Will you help us to begin by acknowledging our own need, by acknowledging our own sinfulness, by recognizing that we are forgiven in the gospel, that Jesus, who has explored all of those dark caves of sin and brokenness in our hearts, still loves us. And if Jesus is still loving us, knowing us as he knows us, then we can begin to open ourselves up and come clean and confess and receive grace and therefore change. So help us. Help us to do that, we ask. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.